digging in the dirt. I'm digging in the dirt. This is Digging in the Dirt with Kevin Gallagher, where Kevin and his guests dig a little deeper into today's issues surrounding the environment, climate change, farming, gardening, and food. My guest on this Digging in the Dirt today is Kim Stanley Robinson. Stan Robinson is a New York Times bestselling author and winner of the Hugo, Nebula, and Locus Awards, science fiction's highest honors. He is author of more than 20 books, including his much-loved Mars trilogy, and he is here today to talk about his latest book, The Ministry for the Future. Welcome, Mr. Robinson. Good to be here, Kevin. Thanks for inviting me. You're more than welcome. May I call you Stan? Yeah, that's what I go by. Okay. Well, I'm delighted to have you here today because I'm an admirer of science fiction and science fiction writers. I have this notion, right or wrong, that sci-fi writers are soothsayers, seers, predictors of the future. Sometimes maybe even Cassandra cursed to foretell the future, but never quite believed. I love reading what your type come up with as future possibilities. I love to be delighted by a new concept, a new technology, a possible future for humanity. And when I read science fiction, to like it, I generally have to say to myself, yeah, that could happen. And, and now I find I'm reading you and you're in a different niche. You're in sort of like uh, the ec- ecological novelist. Is that an accurate way to describe what you're doing these days? Well, I would stick to the idea that I'm a science fiction writer. And um, I like the genre. It's my community. It's my intellectual home, a kind of a floating university and extending in through space and time so that I feel a kinship with, uh, you know, H.G. Wells and Jules Verne and Ursula Le Guin, who was my teacher. So um, it seems to me that every time science fiction begins to do something really, really interesting, then a certain part of our culture tries to name it something else so as to get out from the embarrassment of being interested in science fiction. So I stick to the name science fiction and would defend it. And I know that it's probably important enough to talk about climate change that this new uh, name, climate fiction, I don't want to deny it, but um, uh, or or be too fussy about it because it's kind of a small town personal matter. But I would say that I'm still doing science fiction of a certain particular kind. It's near future, realistic, and so on. And and if you're doing near future science fiction with a realist bent to it, like what's going to happen to us? At this point, climate change is going to happen to us. So um, it's part of the package that you end up writing about it. So do you agree with what I said about being able to predict the future a little bit? or No, I mean to say uh, you can't predict the future. So that would be a tough test. Um, I, I believe it's flatly impossible. And, and so if you make enough predictions, you can accidentally stumble into something that looks prescient. But here's how I would describe what science fiction is up to as a genre. It's like when you go to the 3D movies or back when people went to movies and there were 3D movies, you had to wear a pair of glasses and one lens of the glasses was showing you something slightly different than the other lens. And when you melted the two together, you would get that false sense of 3D. Science fiction is like that in this way. One lens, you really are trying to talk about a a possible future. Like if we do X, we're gonna get to Y, let's think about that. Then the other lens 
is just a metaphor for our own time right now. This is the way the present feels. It feels like I've turned into a robot. It feels like time is speeding up. All the various science fiction, you know, um, zones of interest are also ways of, um, of expressing what it uh, feels like right now. So it's like a poetry, like symbols in, in literature. It's a symbolic literature. So if you, when you combine those two in your head, this is what science fiction readers love to do. What, what the false 3D that pops for you is, is a sense of history of human action through time projected into the future. It's highly fictional. And there is that part that is um, talking about the real future. And there you do tap into what you were talking about, this ancient habit of prophecy. The prophet will, like Cassandra or Isaiah or Jeremiah, you people are terrible. If you keep doing this, you're all going to um, uh, screw everything up and go to hell. That prophecy is very powerful. I'm sure it goes back to uh, way before the invention of writing, the tendency of certain members of the tribe, like the shaman figure would prophesy. So I, I wouldn't take that away from science fiction, but it's also just this metaphorical aspect of this is right now we're in a science fiction novel, at least in the way life feels. <laughs> so that's why you got the power. That's what I would describe as the aesthetic power as a literary form of science fiction. I just talked to Michael E. Mann about his new book, and he says the deniers are dead. This might be a time to talk about that because I mean, every time you do an interview, at least over the last few years, I always have to ask people, do they think it's real, the climate change, you know, and I think maybe we've arrived at that kind of moment. Do you, do you feel the same way that it's hard to deny it, even though there are still deniers? Well, yes, but I have to say right away that I read Michael E. Mann. I did an event with him and I read his new book. And I so I'm somewhat influenced by his judgment because he's in a position to see, having been a point man and having been hammered over the course of his career by uh, climate deniers and people attempting to spread disinformation and misinformation to slow down the whole process of decarbonizing. So he's done heroic work, you might say, representing climate scientists in general in the popular culture, because the popular culture likes to kind of pick one person in a process of personification, like in a novel where a whole class of people get reduced to one character. Well, everybody does that. And Michael E. Mann has been one of those. So, but I have to agree with him. My sense of it is similar that now climate deniers have snuck off into other tactics in a way that he's described in his new book. So I won't go into that again. But what I think is, the glaciers are melting, the ice is melting, and it's like a, a thermostat. The, the condition of ice on this planet is like a big hunk of thermostat. And science of, of climate change is something that is indirect and has to be run from data that is collected. In other words, no one human being can definitively see climate change. But you can, if you're paying attention and you're looking at the evidence that there is and listening to the scientific explanations, you can understand, and some of us can see it ourselves, that all the glaciers are melting. And so if you are you know, over, say, 30 years old, then the glaciers you saw when you were a child, they are vastly reduced now. And for me, having gone up to the Sierras and been uh, in the high mountains of the world looking at glaciers for these last, say, 40, 45 years, um, I've seen it with my own eyes. So I think that helps for a certain kind of skepticism to be shot down. If people say climate change isn't happening, 
then it's clear that they're lying. And then, so they know that too. And they know the climate change is happening. So then you get into all the other um, Weasley methodologies to try to, um, and this is a little perverse, but there are people that are still trying to slow down um, the decarbonization project, usually for very um, monetary reasons, but also for ideological reasons in that they'd, many people would rather see the world burn down than have to admit they were wrong about something. I mean, that's a common human failing. Mm-hmm. Wow. And then there's money to be made out of careers like that. You get a job with the Heartland Institute. You get paid a couple hundred grand a year in order to make up lies. I mean, it's a job. A lot of people are able to ignore the moral questionability of the jobs that they have. And more nefarious corporations want to make as much buck as they can before they have to stop. Yeah, I ran a calculation here. And this is one of the few things I could do as an English major because it was just multiplication. And I've got a scientist's wife to check my numbers because I didn't trust them. But we can burn about 500 gigatons more on carbon before we cross that 1.5 C average global temperature rise. This is what Michael Eman and his crowd have taught us. Uh, and well, the thing is, and this is uh, somewhat my own uh, putting together of different sources of information, but it's all out there. We have already identified about 3,500 gigatons of fossil fuel carbon in the ground, coal, natural gas, and all 3,500 of those gigatons are claimed as assets by companies and by nation states. About 75% of it is actually in the direct control of the nations involved. It's been nationalized one way or another. The companies are owned by the state. The other 25% are private companies like like Exxon or Shell. So, okay, that means 3,000 gigatons, that's billion tons of fossil fuel uh, is there. We know it's there. We could get it out if we wanted it and we have to leave it in the ground or else we've torched the planet and we got jungle planet. So I, I costed it just to taking the cost of a barrel of oil because, you know, natural gas is a little bit cheaper, coal is a little bit more expensive. It was just a thought exercise anyway, that those stranded assets come to something like $1,600 trillion at the current price of oil. And of course, that's a fictional price because as we realize that it's poisonous to us, um, the value of that stuff's going to drop. But here's what, why I bring it up is what you said. Certain nefarious companies are going to say, look, okay, this is going to be stranded 30 years. We're not, and we've got this already in our books. We've actually taken out loans based on this stuff as our assets, our collateral, and it's becoming vapor. It's, it's becoming a non-asset. And so we need to sell it as fast as we can, as much as we can make a trillion or two. It won't be the, you know, it'll just be a drop in the bucket compared to everything else. And so they, they overlook the moral problems and say, well, I'll just get mine as fast as I can and get out of it. Everybody's trying to do that. So it's kind of a fire sale. Mm-hmm. Yep. It's a problem. And that's when we come to the ministry for the future. I mean, the, we, what is going to happen? You know, what are the likely scenarios? And you have a lot of them. I mean, your book is uh, stunning in the breadth of issues that you tackle, I have to say. And just so the listener gets an idea of the ministry of the future, before I tell you to explain it a little bit, I, I, the subject matter that Stan gets to is things like catastrophic heat wave that kills millions, climate refugees, blockchain innovations, acidification of the oceans, groundwater management, herd animals, mob grazing, organic agriculture in India, 
paying farmers for sequestering carbon, an efficient Navy, student debt, the history of money, which we're going to get to before we finish this conversation, the, the ruling class role in all this, uh, capitalism and socialism, modern monetary theory, and um, last but not least, narcissistic rage. <laughs> you, you are really hitting a lot of subject matter in this book, The Ministry for the Future. Yeah, so that list sounds rather um, insane, you might say, for one novel. But um, there is, a, every once in a while, I have done what I call the kitchen sink novel, where one of the ways that you can create a certain sense of uh, plausibility um, to your science fiction scenario, because once you decide to write a story set in the future, every reader comes to it with a sense of knowing that it's a a fantasy that you're making up, almost like you're telling someone your dream. So the solider it seems while you're reading it, the more powerful your willing suspension of disbelief, as Coleridge called it, for um, getting into the world of the novel and believing in it, the more rock solid you can give that feeling, the more powerful the aesthetic effect. Because we do read novels for a sense of, of what's real in the social world. So you want a strong reality effect, and I, at least I do. And that's why, you know, I don't I don't write fantasy because I don't think you can achieve that. But in science fiction, what you can do is kind of pile it on. So I call it the kitchen sink effect, where it looks like an entire world is being described, even though, you know, in fact, there's well, there's almost 600 pages and there's 106 chapters. So it is a, a kitchen sink of a novel. But I did it on purpose to try to increase one's sense that, yeah, this is this is a best case scenario, which it is that I can still believe in. That's what I wanted by throwing all, everything in there and making a kind of a bonfire. I think it works because of the way you set it up. I mean, it's a different kind of, um, I don't know, writing style. I mean, you actually mix styles and, you know, it's, you're doing a lot of first person narrative. You only have two characters really that, I mean, there's a couple others, but the main two yep. drive the story but in and around all these other little chapters that pop up and teach you something, which I find highly useful. Well, thanks for that. I, I tell you, when I found the form for this novel, it made me happy because I realized I could make it work. And I would say that there are two characters, Frank and Mary, and then there are two major minor characters, you might call them, or maybe three or four minor characters that stick out enough that you can you know, remember who they are, et cetera. So it's a pretty small cast, but they serve as a, a skeleton and, and all the, of, of storyline, a spine of the story that you keep coming back to them and hopefully interested in them as individuals, as characters, because novels do depend on you being interested in characters. I believe that um, very deeply. But then you can hang on a strong spine, all these other things, and especially in the case of this book, like you say, the different forms, but also the eyewitness account, that was the crucial one. What I realized is that eyewitness accounts are, there are whole anthologies of them. When something interesting happens, they, it's sort of a reporter job to go around and find out you know, what it felt like to be in Germany in the spring of 1945 or various dramatic moments, you get eyewitness account collections. And I read a bunch of those and I realized that an eyewitness, when they give an account of what they saw, they don't do it like a novelist would do it. They don't talk about what they had for breakfast or what the weather was like. They, they shoot through what's important in the story and they judge it. And they give you a sense of why are they being even asked about this event? They themselves kind of try to judge what was dramatic and important about it. So I seized on that and wrote probably, I don't know, 40 
um, fictional eyewitness accounts. I never bothered to count, but there's a lot of them. And mm -hmm. that shows the transition. And then I had other kinds of, of uh, like notes from meetings. I mean, a meeting as a dramatized scene is gonna be boring just like real meetings are. So I thought, why not just provide the notes and get cut to the chase? Yeah. So cutting to the chase was important. And um, yeah, having set it up that way, I could try to uh, range widely and, uh, and indeed, you know, I have a couple of strands, as you no doubt saw, where there are eyewitness accounts of people who are doing exactly what your um, show is, is usually about, the regenerative agriculture things. Right, like secret. And, yeah, and I quite enjoyed that because I'm here in Davis, California. UC Davis is one of the great agricultural universities on earth, along with Cornell and a few others. Uh, but it's world-class and world-leading. And you could say that the Green Revolution, with all of its problems, was nevertheless seen as innovative in its time. But the Green Revolution was substantially invented right here at UC Davis. And now they're trying to invent what comes next that's better than the Green Revolution, which was insanely fossil-fueled um, and nitrogen-fueled. In any case, here I am in Davis. I got lots of friends in regenerative ag and the head of the student farm, which of course is uh, trying to teach organic. I got organic farming certifiers as neighbors and good friends. And so the few times that I actually dove into it for this book, I had some expert advice and I was having a lot of fun. Maybe we should backtrack a little bit and, and have you explain what is the ministry for the future? Sure. The Paris Agreement, which I regard as a hugely important for us getting through this century, uh, has some clauses that say that they have the right to um, appoint standing subcommittees because really the Paris Agreement just meets once a year. Uh, but they, they gave themselves the right to set up standing committees to work on um, sort of problems that aren't getting solved. So they do that and they make up a ministry for the future, just a sort of legal defense of people who don't have legal standing because they don't yet exist or animals don't speak for themselves. And so they need lawyers to speak for them. So it was a kind of a, you might say a legal arm at first. And so I, I made that up. Um, it turns out I'm finding out subsequent to the book coming out that there are many people on this planet who feel that they are already working for some kind of a ministry for the future um, so, so that you could say that people defending regenerative agriculture or organic farming, they're speaking for the soil, they're speaking for the ecology or the, the biome, um, the watershed, uh, and defending it. So they read this book and they get, they're pleased to be represented in fiction, you might say. Right. Everybody so, has a little part. Yeah. And so my ministry is uh, fictional. Is I said it in Zurich, where my wife and I lived for a couple of years while she was doing a postdoc and she herself is a um, works on fate of pesticides in surface waters for u.s geological survey so her whole career has been dedicated to problems of pesticides and what what we can do about them so i have another angle on that whole issue too mm -hmm. another conversation <laughs> yep so the ministry, but it come it becomes sort of a uh, comes to the forefront with a big event, which turns out to be twenty million people dying in a heat wave in India, and the protagonist Frank is you know completely decimated. He goes through the heat wave, and then he becomes some of the driving force behind a lot of the stuff that you talk about in the the novel, along with Mary. Yeah, that's right. And this, I have to say, was a deep fear and a hard scene to write. The latest news out of the um, climate scientists front that hit me, this was early, or late, maybe late 2018, 
was that there was a certain talk in adaptation circles saying, look, we just have to adapt. We're never going to stop climate change. We're just going to, you know, say the average temperature goes up three degrees centigrade, four degrees Celsius. There's, there's no uh, ceiling that you run into that is makes life totally impossible. We're just going to have to adapt and give up on trying to rapidly decarbonize. And it was kind of environmental humanists and fossil fuel defenders and uh, eco-modernists and various people that hadn't really thought it through because as it turns out the combination of heat and humidity is an index uh, sometimes called wet bulb temperatures and it's worth looking up wet bulb temperatures when you get to wet bulb 35 which is a combination of heat and humidity where you've got say could be as low as 95 degrees fahrenheit but that would be at 100 percent humidity that humans begin to die um, within hours from uh, hyperthermia because uh, sweating doesn't work. The human body internalizes too much heat and cooks itself and you die from various kinds of organ failure. Well, we've hit wet bulb 35 temperatures. They've been recorded uh, mostly in the tropics, but then the, there was a wet bulb 34 that hit right outside Chicago in 1995. So we're, we're getting close. And in other words, we actually can't adapt because it's just gonna outright kill us. And that gave me the idea that we really are in an emergency, a kind of all hands on deck situation. I thought, let's write the ministry and start with a slap to the face, which describing what could happen if we don't jump on it really fast right now. So it was a scary experience. It made me think that my novel needed to stick with India. I decided to put the first event on the Gangetic Plain because there are incredible danger there relative to most places on earth. Humidity and heat, yeah, it, stick, it stacks up against the Himalayas and it gets caught there. And so the rest of my novel does stick with India as being a the most traumatized, the nation state that has a billion people that'll be really angry, that'll be really motivated. And they have all kinds of good things going on there right now, as well as all kinds of bad things like anywhere else. Um, so the novel has a strong Indian strand. So much to talk about there. You know, through all the chaos and the breakdown of the institutions and the ecology in the book, I think you think humanity may come out the other side with a better way of living with each other and with other species on the planet. In fact, because of this Indian catastrophe, there begins the great turn you label it. Do you think that's something that is possible, that we will have a great turn as humanity and start you know, getting our act together? Well, I think it's possible. What I would say is that I wrote this book in 2019 thinking, well, this is a best case scenario and I have to show the dangers. I have to show the people that will be crazily trying to wreck the process of getting in balance with the biosphere that are going to have to be defeated politically and maybe even physically in order for us to get the job done. It was really swimming against the tide uh, to write this book as a, a, a gesture of hope or just an insistence that we could do it if we wanted to, if we rallied everything in an all hands on deck way. But what I've been noticing is a lot of people are reading the book and there, well, first of all, there's a kind of a, what you might call an internet response. Um, young, fashionable, cynical, not particularly up on the actual details of the sciences involved. Say, right. oh, well, that's that can happen. It's what Michael Mann calls doomism. That mm -hmm. doomism has been uh, very successful in now that everybody, they've had to give up on saying there isn't climate change. They're now saying, well, it's too late anyway. There's nothing we can do about it. Let's just go down in flames. What I call the Gertrude Dahmerung. Uh, 
Um, so um, there's that response to my book. Oh, well, he's such an optimist that can never happen. The other response that I'm hearing that surprises me and encourages me is a lot of people are saying, look, we're doing all this stuff already. We're making great progress. Why do you portray the good stuff happening in the 2030s? Um, we're already working on it right now. And, you know, since the Biden administration came in, first of all, their push on climate has been way more energetic and uh, gung-ho than anybody expected and in a very encouraging way. And uh, secondly, the all the central banks have uh, said, we are willing to do carbon quantitative easing to help save the world. Uh, but it's best if legislatures tell us to do it so that we don't have to get out of our lane and stay away from our what we're being told by our governments to do. We don't have the power to save the world, but we certainly do have the power to tweak the financial system to help save the world. You just have to tell us to do it. And I'm a, I mean, Christine Lagarde made a speech and the head of the World Bank made a speech. IMF made a speech, the head of the Federal Reserve made a speech. This is all coming in the last month. And Larry Fink of BlackRock? Yes, yes. Oh, yes. And the, the, the private world. It is a big deal. It's sort of like, in fact, this is another thing Michael Mann has said recently uh, with the publication of his new book, that climate scientists talked about tipping points where the weather or the climate might shift over a tipping point and begin to fall hard in a different direction. That has happened. Well, he's talking about a political tipping point and a, a civilizational tipping point, even bigger than politics, where people are, are saying, look, I believe it. Let's do something about it. There are things that can be done. And to see the financing of it, which I regard as crucial, to see them begin to jump on the right side of the tipping point, um, well, maybe the teeter-totter will fall in the right direction. Right. I just read that Larry Fink went on vacation with some of the boys, and they got out there fishing, and there was no salmon. And then in, in Alaska, there was fires, and he was <laughs> freaking out, and he's gone. So it became personal for him. <laughs> yeah, well, you know. That's good, because he's running the yeah. most money in the world, right? Well, we're all personal. And of course, he's running the biggest private hedge fund in the world. That's a drop in the bucket compared to what governments and central banks can bring to bear. But actually, uh, that's wrong too, Kevin, because um, say the biggest central bank, uh, the, the Chinese one in terms of assets, they got something like $5 trillion. Well, private banks are giving out, you know, fifty trillion per year in loans, and that creates new money out from scratch, also. So I wouldn't want to, I wouldn't want to poo-poo the power of private capital to make a huge difference here, because they are a giant part of the picture. It's sure. just that they're regulated by governments, and central banks can manipulate at the monetary level right at the fundamental levels of interest rates, et cetera. So they can push, they can do carbon quantitative easing and push tons of money into um, good climate work in a way that private investment is always looking for the highest rate of return. So what you need to do is hammer them with regulation, with taxes and with incentives that are positive, such that the highest rate of return actually becomes doing the right thing rather than the wrong thing. Right. And that's what my book has been focused on. Yeah, and you know, I read in one of your interviews or somewhere I read, you give the central banks the idea that in order to stabilize money, which is their one and only project, then they can have to save the world to do that. There's a certain comedy to the solution that, well, we don't want interest rates to go up. Therefore, we have to dodge a mass <laughs> extinction event yeah, because well, that I, would be bad for interest rates. <laughs> that's, I, uh, it still makes me laugh, as you can tell. It strikes me very funny, but that's what 
bankers and especially central bankers, that's how they think of their job. And um, so if it takes saving the world to stabilize interest rates, then they're <laughs> going to they're going to jump on board. <laughs> yeah, I always thought that the environmental movement, and everything was missing the boat by not courting the corporation and courting the finance, courting the corporate world, you know, to, to come along, you know, because it, it does affect their bottom line. Well, but right now, what I would say is that um, it's right to focus right on legislation and not to focus on private uh, investment industry, because they're just following the rules as they're set. And mm -hmm. we are in a world where the highest rate of return will gather all the capital. It's the game they've been told to play. The success is finding the highest uh. Uh, rate of return and then making a lot of money from pouring it in there. Now, if, if the highest rate of return comes from cutting down a forest in Chile and turning it into toilet paper in Japan, and then one point of value below that is like saving that forest for uh, the 10 generations to follow, they'll go for the toilet paper because the highest rate of return is the only law. This is like Lord of the Rings, one law to rule them all, one ring to bind them. And it's a stupid rule. It's an algorithm that's over simple. It's a, like an index, they say in Finax, mm -hmm. and a very poor one for long-term uh, health of the biosphere. So I think it's important. And, and I think environmentalists have been right. You've got to change the laws and then private investment will follow what laws there are. Mm -hmm. My guest today is Kim Stanley Robinson. He's author and science fiction writer and has a great trilogy, the Mars Trilogy. And he's here to talk about his new book called The Ministry for the Future. Given that we exist in this, I know you, you mentioned this in the book, that we exist in this neoliberal capitalism nation state system with a global biosphere problem. How does it work that these competitive players with different goals, agendas, different ways will get these things done? How's this going to work? Uh, I think through the Paris Agreement uh, as an international treaty where because we're not going to be able to get out of the nation state system fast enough to deal with the problem that's bearing down on us right now. And we've only got a decade or two to completely decarbonize. So, OK, nation state system, global problem. It's a mess. International treaties are weak. The Paris Agreement right now is weak because there is no sheriff. And as it stands, everybody makes voluntary offers of how much carbon they'll cut and how fast. And it turns out that that's only half as fast as we need anyway, but they're not even doing that. Except now, some of them are. The promises are getting stronger. The actions are getting stronger. The tipping point may have been hit, but it's gonna happen through the Paris Agreement because we can't suddenly institute a world government and say, well, we're all part of the great earth government. Um, you know, Let's go to the great earth Congress and we'll pass international laws that are obligatory for everybody to follow with guns behind them. That just won't happen. So the mechanisms are weaker, but they're not completely toothless, especially if everybody believes in them. So as I said, nation states own these fossil fuels already. They're assets of all the big petro states. So um, Russia, Saudi Arabia, United States, Canada, Australia, India, Brazil, Mexico, the petro states. They're big and they got a lot of fossil fuel. And it's like they've gone to a meeting and they've, since if they burn this, their fossil fuels, the world blows up. It's like a meeting of diplomats where they all have explosive vests and chargers, like in some horrible thriller, like Die Hard. And they're walking around the room going, look, you got to do what I say, or I'm going to blow up my vest and kill us all. But, the, but they're all saying that. 
And then they're all going, well, you know, we could blow ourselves up. Why don't, let's all push the button at once and see who, who can run out of the building. Well, nobody can run out of the building. So then they say, well, it's not going to work. I guess we can't push these buttons. We can't even threaten each other. You know, a, a single person says, well, I'm going to blow up mine and then you guys can deal. But then the rest of them, you know, might seize that person and strangle them. You know, but I think that these guys, they're going to spend their assets unless we do something. I mean, is that where in the book you start talking about a carbon coin and are paying them not to do it? Is yeah. that the solution? Well, I think so. Money's fictional. And what quantitative easing proved in 2009 and, and then in 2020 is that central banks can make up a certain amount of money from scratch. And they can also make laws that make private banks give out loans in particular directions. Between those two uh, levers, you can actually pay people to not burn carbon rather than to burn it. Um, in other words, you, you can't just suddenly say to a company that was designed to fuel civilization and we've all taken advantage of it, oh, you guys are villainous and we are going to uh, break you up and it's all your fault. It's actually all of civilization's fault for inventing and using this technology that energizes us. So um, a financial settlement, it's, it's somewhat like paying off blackmailers and it's also somewhat like paying yourself to do the right thing rather than the wrong thing, because these are all mostly petrostates, their national governments. So everybody has to pretend that um, money that they would have gained by selling trillions of dollars worth of oil and torching the world, they get that same amount of money, maybe amortized over the same amount of time, maybe discount, maybe they take a haircut. I mean, this is all finance talk for a settlement where we don't go bankrupt or lose differential value against other countries, that everybody gets the value of their fossil fuels without having burned it. It's just a game. I mean, the problem with money is that if you think enough about it, you realize that it's fictional and that we all have to believe in it like a hallucination or, or a hypnotism game where unless everybody believes in it, it doesn't work for anybody. What I'm impressed by is that I used to talk like this and people would just roll their eyes. You know, the science fiction writer, he writes about Mars. He's an obvious Martian. He's also a communist. I mean, why even listen to him? But now I'm hearing central bankers, president of the World Bank, et cetera, talking this same line. And of course, people who are way better at political economy than I am are thinking out the details of how it could work. It's not me that's onto something. It's that the world is... is um, blundering into a method that will work where we can pay ourselves to do the right thing rather than the wrong thing. It'd be a little more expensive in the long run if you don't do something like that and to repair yeah. it. And and actually, when you say that, that brings in another huge power, which is the insurance companies and right. the reinsurance companies, because they're saying that now. And mm -hmm. the militaries are saying that. The militaries of the world, hey, you, we are charged with defending this country. Then, in fact, we have to defend it by doing these good things. Yeah, so, Norfolk, uh, Virginia is going underwater. <laughs> yeah, yeah, well, and the Navy. Yeah. Um, they could become a force for good, and they often have been in the past. So solutions will come from everywhere. And the old um, pieties, you know, as an old left-winger, hippie, you know, Buddhist California, I'm like anybody else. You get locked into a vision of the world. There are good guys and bad guys. There are good technologies and bad technologies. A lot of that has to be, let's not say thrown out, but re-examined for what can be put to use. 
Yeah, well, I've never read a science fiction book that gave such a detail, a whole chapter on the history of money and banking. I mean, I, it, it was illuminating. I mean, I don't think about those things in that regard, you know, but it, it, it makes a lot of sense that, you know, they're going to be a player in this whole thing. And, and then you move on to things like uh, the role of the ruling class. And you also talk about capitalism, socialism, and post-capitalism. And, and do we, do you feel that that's, this is going to be something that we have to do to, to come out the other side of the, the crisis to, to, to actually change the system, the way it works? Yes, I do. I think that capitalism, especially neoliberal capitalism, is is creating the problem by mispricing everything and trying to rip profit out of uh, working people's lives and out of the biosphere as a source of resources, unsustainably in both cases. People are miserable. They're all in the precariat. They don't have health care. They don't have housing. The misery is, is widespread, even in the rich countries, um, the people that haven't won in the system. So, and that's capitalism. I mean, this is all legal. The people at the top, the people in the 1%, they have not broken any laws, typically. And they are very nice people, typically. They're just following a game that's been set out for them to play. They've succeeded at the game. It's wrecking the world and people's lives. And that's capitalism. So I speak here as a, as a leftist and anti-capitalist. So what what improves it? Well, um, some tenants from socialism, some tenants from democratic socialism for sure, but also I often call it post-capitalism because I'm not sure that we have described what's going to come next, that it's going to have elements from a bunch of different systems and that the economists have not been particularly inventive or useful in trying to figure out how to pay ourselves to do the right thing, how to create more equality and justice and sustainability for the biosphere that the economics of that have not been properly worked out. So when I try to make that stuff up for, in a science fiction novel, well, I'm looking at places like Kerala or Sikkim or Mondragon, um, uh, Bologna. I'm looking at uh, places that seem to have done better or the co-ops in America, places that do better that already exist. And then I'm cobbling together these kind of hand-waving systems because I am not a, a, a political economist or an economist at all. Um, but but now I'm noticing that that people with a lot more expertise are bending together and trying to figure all these things out. Yeah, but it seems to me that you have a clarity on the subject that uh, a lot of, and a way of conveying you know what's going on that's really understandable that most academics don't have. Do you ever get the feeling? I mean, I know you like the science fiction mode of, of communicating, but do you ever get the feeling that? You know, maybe you're not taking this seriously because you're a science fiction writer, or you would, or you would like to do a, an academic paper that gets into some of this stuff because it seems really important to me. Well, I have thought about it in this just in this last year or two. I've, I feel like I'm a novelist, and that the novel is a great form for clarifying what's going on in society. You you imagine individuals, you 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 hang with characters, you're inside their head, you live their lives. And you come out of it and you know a lot more about that, how that society works, at least when you've got social novels like Balzac or George Eliot, the, the kind of great 19th century novels were about individuals in society and about history. So I've got a great form for talking about what I want to talk about at the level that I understand it. A nonfiction book that briefly tried to outline what I think um, a post-capitalist system is going to need is an interesting project. And I don't know, I mean, maybe the Ministry for the Future is already it. 
Mm -hmm. And that all I could do is, is, if you reduce it down to its blueprint or its essence of its suggestions, it becomes just like the op-ed page of any uh, newspaper. We need this, we need that. It might not have the same force as living through it in a fictional way like ministry does. But I haven't put it off the table. I'm writing columns for Bloomberg Green, and that makes me laugh. I mean, here I am in the Bloomberg empire as a <laughs> re resident you know, science fictional, communistic, left-wing American and IWW guy, but I'm trying to write there just as clear as I would in my novels, what I think needs to be done. And those pieces connect up with each other. They're each only a thousand words long and it takes me, you know, 5,000 words just to clear my throat. So it's not really my forte, <laughs> uh, but I'm interested. And, and I do think it's something that ought to be done. And, and so I'm, I'm looking around. I would say lastly that, you know, ever since the pandemic hit, so now about a year ago, um, we're getting close to the year anniversary that suddenly everybody, and I would say on earth, but particularly in America, they suddenly realized that science fiction might be a little bit more applicable to their lives than they had ever thought before. Right. So um, I've got a bigger audience. Uh, what I'm saying is being taken more seriously. I guess I would say that there's still a, a kind of thing called the public intellectual. And Michael E. Mann, he's a scientist, but he's also a public intellectual. Uh, Naomi Klein, public intellectual. Um, Andy Revkin or uh, Bill McKibben. These are climate uh, public intellectuals. There are other kinds, of course. And so I think I'm I've joined that crowd coming out of the science fiction field, which is not at all incongruous. Right. Um, we always should have been doing that in science fiction. And in a lot of ways we have been, so. Well, so much I want to talk to you about. The, you, you talk about socialism having a um, some precursors to what we may need to do, because especially if we want to take care of the biosphere, which is part of our extended body. I mean, I think you said in one of your, uh, maybe it's in ministry that you say, there's some somebody postulates that we need to have human rights as medicine, food, living wage. Is that yeah. why you lean that way? Well, I'm thinking about the commons and the biosphere as our extended body. Well, we all uh, we're all that means we're all intermeshed with each other like some giant science fictional alien supra organism and more and more we know that it's true like the finding that 50 percent of the dna inside your body is not human dna well that's a game changer for philosophy of what are we talk about social creatures we're like bees and individually we're just as capable and accomplished as an individual bee, but no individual bee can get by and, and needs the, the things to eat, the thing, the, it needs the hive, it needs the, the whole society. We're like that. In America, I often translate this into public utilities, that there, should, there are public goods that the public needs to be provided on a kind of nonprofit basis where everybody maybe pays a fee for them, but nobody's really making a profit off of it, but society itself. Let's talk about adequacy. Adequate food, water, shelter, clothing, electricity, healthcare, and education. So those all ought to be public goods, public utilities that uh, we do as a kind of commons that the, the government organizes it and pays people. I mean, right now, school teachers are paid by government if you go to a public school. None of this is all that revolutionary in the American context. It's just usually put down by neoliberal capitalist ideologues who are trying to convince us that private is good, public is bad. Well, that's always been wrong and needs to be fought. So I guess what I'd say, given where we are right now, 
is simple Keynesianism, where government takes a huge role in making the economy work, and then private uh, businesses play a huge role in actually executing all of the contracts and doing the work that government sets in motion by laws. This combination, you know, is is not neoliberal capitalism. It's it's Keynesian. It's so there's aspects of it. There's democratic socialism or social democracy, like in Scandinavia. These different models of how the economy ought to work that are more just and more sustainable. This is what I'm looking towards and and trying to concoct without using too many. How can you say it? Slogans from the past that are maybe worn out or inflammatory that a lot of Americans are allergic to, you know, certain terms, and they think they already know what they mean and that they're bad. So, how, how likely is this? I mean, given the vitriolic state of uh, the discourse in America right now, I mean, liberal is a swear word, but let alone socialism. I mean, you think people are, is, is, it, is your premise that the environment and this, this crisis that's upon us is going to force us into some of this mode of trying out some a new system? Well, yeah. And I also think that, you know, what can't go on won't go on. So we're in a crashing system ecologically and politically. So that's not going to go on. So how's it going to change? And in terms of, you know, this divide in America, well, FDR and the New Deal, he was widely hated and reviled. There was a, a vicious opposition to the New Deal that needs to be remembered here. He got a working majority. He and his team, his brain trust, his people and his supporters across the country, they fought like crazy to make what improvements they did in the New Deal. And it took the full uh, 14 years between 1932 and 1945 or 46. That whole time it was being fought over and all the, the FDR crew, the New Deal was managing to do was hold together a working majority just enough to barely scrape that thing through. Mm -hmm. And now it's widely regarded as a huge upgrade in American life. And I don't think it's going to be simple. That would be naive given what we've seen in these, these last four years and this, and this last four months. Two um, weeks. <laughs> to, it's been shocking. Yeah. Um, uh, so a working majority, I mean, in that sense, you can get into details like probably we should get rid of the filibuster. Probably we should try to just jam through the good things that need to be done. And there will be elements in this country, the right wing squeaking and crying and saying, oh, you're ruining everything and you're taking away our freedoms. And meanwhile, we'll be improving the environment, the ecology, the, the biophysical world we all rely on for the generations to come. And the fight will never end. It's it's a political battle, and and everybody's fighting it on an emotional level. Where, you know, if if science could convince everybody of scientific truths, we might be better off than we are. Because everybody runs to a scientist when they're sick. They run to their doctor, and there's very few Americans that won't run to their doctor and beg and cry for help when they're sick. And their doctor is a scientist, so everybody believes in science. And, you know, although the social sciences are a little shakier than the biological and physical sciences, they still use the scientific method to try to come to some finding as to what we should do on this planet. So I think, yeah, I am hopeful, and, uh, but I, I realize that we are in a, um, uh, a wicked fight.
What I'm interested in is your thoughts on geoengineering, because in your book, you talk about that quite a bit in the in the Antarctica and also some other things that the Indians did with putting reflective particles. And you have now Mr. Gates in Sweden and Harvard doing that experiment in June. <laughs> it's your book comes true. Right. Geoengineering has been talked about in the, in the scientific uh, technical community for quite some time. And it's really controversial because a lot of people when they hear about it, they instinctively distrust it. And that's kind of right, I think. Uh, but then there's a political opposition to it because now geoengineering is basically defined as finding some techno silver bullet out of Silicon Valley that'll allow us to keep on doing the horrible things that we're doing and get away with it. So by that definition, it's naturally bad. But it could be that if we get into these wet bulb 35 temperatures, we might be in an emergency situation where the all hands on deck moment comes and we might have to consider doing things that are being called geoengineering now. Um, I've always been making the point because I've been working on that issue for many years now. What is geoengineering? Well, in fact, I just read this today and I think it might have been in the New York Times. The fastest way to decarbonize this planet is to make sure that all women on the planet have a full education and full property rights, uh, control their lives, and then the population rate drops, and then there's less pressure on the whole system. Could you call that geoengineering justice? Well, it's a it blows apart the concept of the way people are thinking of it. They're saying, no, 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 what, I, what we mean is a, a physical geoengineered intervention in the, in the biogeological cycle. And I'm just saying, laws are technologies, and if you give women rights over their lives, then the population goes down and you have indeed impacted the whole biogeo system. But to get back to their point, if you put dust particles up in the atmosphere like a volcanic explosion does, and some sulfur dioxide, well, you lower temperatures for like three to five years afterwards. We saw that after Pinatubo. So that gets discussed a lot because it looks like it could be done for relatively cheap, you know, $100 million, like enough that a, a crazy billionaire could do it on their own, perhaps. And that makes it scary because it needs to be a worldwide discussion, but there's no platform to have that discussion. So it's problematic. The other thing I put into my novel was this notion of slowing down the glaciers as they slide into the sea by taking the lubrication out from under them because they're sliding on a water slide rather than being frozen to bedrock. That's the reason that the sea levels are rising so much faster and that the ice is sliding into the sea. So this is actually a new idea that is in my book, but it's not my idea, it's glaciologists' idea. There too, the technology is already there. And there's no downside. If you like the beach, then you really ought to be in favor of trying this. Because <laughs> the beaches of the world are doomed. Yep. They are right now they are doomed. You, a, you didn't mention that much in the book. Is that because just not enough time to go through? I mean, it was an obvious thing. Well, I, I wrote about this in an earlier novel, or 2312, where they're reconstructing beaches. I even wrote about it in New York 2140. I guess I wanted this novel to be jammed face planted right into the present because mm -hmm. sea level rise is a little bit of a delayed effect and within the lifetimes of most people alive today you won't see the end of the beaches in the the in the next century uh, it could they'll it be gone could, they'll be gone and and i myself grew up on beaches i'm a beach kid and, me too and um it kills me the idea of beaches going away it's a beautiful culture and a beautiful landscape 
I guess what I'd say is that this is why 350.org, this is why the idea of drawing carbon dioxide out of the atmosphere, getting back to 350 parts per million is a geoengineering task of the highest order that could save the beaches or at least bring them back. Mm. So I think we are into the Anthropocene and the Anthropocene is gonna be a case of humanity deciding to do things at geosphere scale that are quite terrifying, but perhaps necessary anyway. In my own work, I, all I can do is what I do. In my science fiction novels, I try to stick to the science as we know it now. So let's talk a little bit about the positive things that are going on in the world and I sort of uh, land on chapter 85. That's your it's oh, like yeah. ecological restoration projects. It's just a massive list of people doing things. I'm guessing that most of them are probably real. Yeah, I, almost all but two are real. Two or three I, I wanted and I stuck them into a list that all the rest of them are real. And we're talking about a five page list, I think, in the audio yeah. book. It, it it's takes impressive. 15 minutes. Well, I, this is one of the things that can happen. Uh, one of my uh, friends contacted me and said, have you seen this Google map? And look at this Google map. It's just restoration projects stuck onto a map. And the way that the person found the restoration projects is on YouTube. So scrolling YouTube, finding the, the projects, and then sticking them with pins on a Google map. And I just went down that list in order. Mm -hmm. Because here's the thing, we're already doing so many good things. And if it's coordinated so that it's working top down as well as bottom up and also very importantly side to side because people always think that it's either bottom up or top down but in fact side to side is crucial in, in our society by that i mean all the cities getting together for instance alliances i mean 100 million americans are living in cities that are already linked in alliances to do great decarbonizing climate work that's impressive side to side. The bottom up is super impressive because it's something you can do in your neighborhood. When I write a novel about how well, if the dozen central bankers that run the world's financial system were to do the right thing, then we'd all be saved. It looks very top down, but also it gives you a cast of characters that you can fit into one book. So I wanna make the point that it takes all these things going and the, the the local projects you can join, you can get out there, you can dig some tree, you know, plant some trees or take care of some animals. Right, that's what we talk about here on Digging the Dirt. It's uh, important to keep that aspect going and the big picture too. Yeah. Um, you know, cause I mean, in there you mentioned Kiss the Ground, they've been on here, you know, the Lake Erie Bill of Rights, which is interesting giving a, a lake, the Bill of Rights and, and many, many others. It's a pretty impressive list. Yeah, it really is. And giving rights to the landscape is, it, at first it sounds like a hippie thing. And then it's like the land ethic, what's good is what's good for the land. And then it brings back the commons, something that we all share together that keeps us alive. And, and Ecuador has um, rights in their constitution for their forest. And uh, Wales now has a ministry for the future that defends the rights of the landscape. It's a growing movement to have legal standing so that you can argue for the case for these entities that are important to us they're fellow citizens but they can't speak for themselves and you and you also bring up the half earth project too which is a really interesting project i mean you want to talk about that just for a minute yeah sure eo wilson wrote a book called half earth and proposed that the biological health of the world would be best off if humanity confined themselves to half the land surface and i think he means also half the oceans in terms of traveling on top of the oceans, but on land, he meant living. Well, it was such a 
it seemed transgressive. It seemed like, you know, he's 90, maybe he's lost it. The book didn't get as reviewed as, as his earlier books got reviewed. And it looked like a science fictional idea. 10 years after he published that book, it is a stated goal of the European Union to leave 30% of their land free to the wild animals. And humans are contracting into the cities inexorably and with great enthusiasm. Young people are leaving the villages. Young people are leaving the farms. Farming is getting more mechanized. Maybe that's bad. I mean, actually more people ought to move back onto farms. But cutting the landscape up such that wild animals can't do what they need to to stay alive is a mistake and it isn't necessary for us to feed ourselves. So this is where the half-earth idea that Wilson put out there, at first it looked radical, then it looked like um, biological uh, necessity and we're already at work on it. And I'm shocked at how fast the uptake has been on that idea, but I I think it's a uh, suggestive as to how powerful an idea it is. Yeah, it, it's coming to fore in local stuff with the pollinator pathway. It's the same kind of concept. You know, the leave a corridor all the way up the East Coast that is for pollinators. Oh, yeah. And, and uh, Doug Tallamy has a thing called the National Park of the Backyard, I think, something like that, where oh, yeah. you, every backyard will be part of a, and they'll identify you as being part of a national park that is your backyard, and we can connect them all so that you are providing uh, habitats for all kinds of insects and pollinators and whatnot. Wow, that would be so cool, especially on the eastern half of the United States is On the one hand, it's so densely populated. On the other hand, the great hardwood forest is always taking it back. Yeah. Um, And so the combination is such that you really could do these things. Yeah, uh, his book was Nature's Best Hope, A New Approach to Conservation That Starts in Your Yard. And so he's trying to link everybody's yard to uh, have a national park. Well, yeah, it's a good, I bet he says, get rid of your goddamn lawn. That, that Oh, yeah, everybody that, does. <laughs> yeah, yeah. We got rid of ours here in California. It was ridiculous because we had to irrigate it and we had to water it for, for two thirds of the year. Got rid of it and got to native plants and the, the bees, the various pollinators are just having a blast out there and it looks nicer too. And sure. you don't, really don't have to do anything either. Right. It's maintenance free. It just, it's that peer pressure in suburbia that is the problem. Yeah. My guest is Kim Stanley Robinson, and it's been really a pleasure having him here today. His new book is The Ministry for the Future. You should check it out. I want to leave you with a question you pose in the um, Ministry for the Future. You say, what would a just civilization of 8 billion in balance with the biosphere look like? Well, let's say that adequacy uh, for all 8 billion and the other animals, uh, the big animals especially, that there isn't a mass extinction event. So um, concentration in cities, less uh, suburbs, um, a rural agricultural world that leaves giant habitat zones for the wild creatures to survive, and then everybody at adequacy, and then uh, progressive taxes such that the the richest that you could get in that society would be, say, 10 times the the floor adequacy. Because 10 times adequacy is already luxurious and you don't need any more. So you'd be working on, on uh, keeping the biosphere going, that we're only taking as much out of the biosphere as we're putting back into it, getting rid of wastes properly, and, and functioning political representation for everybody so that everybody feels like their political representation actually represents them. 
people want to have, feel represented properly by their government one way or another. So I think that that's physically possible, technologically possible. Whether it's politically possible, that's the fight that we're in. Thank you so much for joining me today, Kim Stanley Robinson. His new book is The Ministry for the Future. Pleasure, Kevin. Thanks for inviting me. Digging in the dirt. Digging in the dirt. You've been listening to Digging in the Dirt with Kevin Gallagher. To hear past programs anytime you want, visit the podcast section of WPKN.org or diggingindedirtradio.com.